0: Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm the campus pastor here, one of the elders here at the downtown campus. Uh, Happy New Year. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. Uh, Love getting to gather together, start off the new year together. Um, And it's New Year, and so we have resolutions we've made. It's day three, so you're probably going strong right now. If you've already quit, well done. I don't know how you did it but that's impressive. You were day three and you're already out. I like that. You don't follow anybody's rules, not even your own that you set for yourself. Um, But we're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to John chapter 5. To John chapter 5 and go ahead and hold a a place marker in Psalm 1. We're going to be in those two texts today. John 5 and Psalm 1. That's where we'll be. Something about the new year, we joke about resolutions, but something about the new year makes you want to change your life. It's crazy to me that something about just this date, January 1st, this new year, 2016, it, it makes you want to do something different. Now, whether or not you've made a resolution, whether or not you've written it down, whether or not you posted it on Facebook or Twitter or something, if I asked every person in this room and I asked you directly, I said, hey, but there's probably one thing you want to change this year, right? If I asked you directly, said, hey, no, what's this one thing you want to be better at, you want to be different, or you want to do this year? I'm sure all of us would have at least one thing we want to change. At least one thing we want to be different. And what's fascinating to me about resolutions is what they show us about humanity. Because resolutions are fascinating because all of your resolutions have one thing in common. No matter what they are, no matter how different they may be in their nature as to what you're trying to accomplish, they have one thing in common, and here's what it is. All of your resolutions, whether it's in January when you make them or in March or in November, all of your resolutions have one thing in common and that they are a means to an end. They're means to an end. The reason you make resolutions is not simply for the resolution itself. It's the joy you want out of that change. You don't just want a healthier body. You don't just simply want that. You may be aiming for that. But the reason you want that, because you want the feeling of joy of being healthy. It's not about just being fit. It's about what you get out of it. You want more energy. You want to be noticed by other people. You want something out of it. It's not about the resolution itself. No matter if it's, I want greater discipline in this area. That's great, but the reason you want greater discipline is because what you're really after is feeling in control of your life. What you're really after is having more purpose, more achievement, more influence. When you look at our resolutions, what they show us is that you and I are needy people who have these needs that must be met. And so we try to change our life, try to change our circumstances and change our habits and change our behaviors and change our thinking. Why? Because we want to have these fundamental needs met of approval and power and love and significance and purpose. We have these fundamental needs that will not go away, that cannot go away because they're hardwired into us. That we make resolutions in order to satisfy those needs and those longings. But what you find in resolutions is that even the best resolution, even if you keep it, even if you get it, even if you actually achieve the thing you're setting for this year, if that's your ultimate sense of approval, your ultimate sense of comfort or power or love, guess what? That's eventually going to fail you. Because your desires, your needs are insatiable. It's like hunger. You can have the best meal of your life and be stuffed and never and make proclamations, I am never eating again. Seriously, this time, never eating again. You wake up in the morning, what do you have there again? When it felt like you could have not been more full, the next morning what do you have? Hunger again. That's what your needs are like with approval. That's what your needs are like with power. You have these needs that even when they get met by somebody or something, guess what? You needed to be approved of again. Guess what? You need to be loved again. And it doesn't just need to be like old, stale love. It needs to be fresh, new, and even more potent love. You are insatiable in your neediness. Why? Because God made you for him. Whether you're a Christian in this room or not, most of you are, but whether you're Christian or not, all of you were made by God for him. And so God is eternal. God is infinite. He has this eternal love. He has infinite value. And he made you so that you would work best and you would have fullness of joy when you depend on an infinite, eternal God. That's why everything in this life that's not God Everything in this life that is not God will eventually buckle under the weightiness of your neediness. Eventually, every single person you love won't approve of you enough or do it well. Eventually, the body that you're you're working to attain eventually will break down. Eventually, the power that you want, the influence that you want, eventually you'll hit a ceiling. Eventually, but guess what? Even though the things let us down, our needs don't go away. So you can either settle and act like you don't want or need approval or love or significance or purpose and be miserable. Or you can constantly reshuffle the deck of your life. But the thing is, you have, it's all the same cards. It's all the same cards, just reshuffling the deck, hoping you'll get a different result. And resolutions show us it's not about the thing. It's about what you're after. God made you for him, so you're always going to be needy, no matter what it is, because it's always in you. You're made for an eternal, infinite God. So I want to read to you Psalm 16, read to you what it's like to know this God who you're made for. Psalm 16, don't turn there, this is a real quick verse. Psalm 1611, listen how David talks about when you know this God, the one you're made for. He says, you make known to me the path of life, The path of life, you make known to me. In your presence, there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen to how David describes what it's like to know God. Listen to this text again. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David says, when I get around God, And God's everywhere. But when I get in his presence and I'm aware of who he is and I'm interacting with him, he says, he shows me where life is. But you say, David, you're already alive. He goes, I know, but there's a way to be alive and yet not be alive. You know what that's like. You you can physically exist but be so empty. And he says, this God of mine, when I get around him, he shows me where to go to find life because it's where he walks. And he says, this God, when I get in his presence, there's this not partial joy, not a limited joy. He says, fullness of joy. All your resolutions are about getting joy. And he says, I find that in the presence of God. I find that in the presence of God. He says, at your right hand, under your authority, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David says, when I get around this God, the chaotic cravings I have that are insatiable and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming, I actually have sincere contentment when I'm around God. Sincere contentment is a rare thing in this life. It is rare to be content with the life that you've been given. It's a rare thing. That's why New Year's resolutions are us saying, really, I'm not content with my life, right? That's why you want to change. And he says, when I get around God, I have this contentment, this delight, this joy that I can't find anywhere else. All your resolutions, resolutions point to the fact that you need God. You're made for him. You're made to be in his presence because you are made for fullness of joy. So where do you go to find his presence? Like, that's the question. Okay, if, if I'm made for joy and I'm constantly looking for joy and his presence is fullness of joy, then it follows to say, then I need to find out where his presence is. So where's God's presence? Is it in this gym? You're like, well, God's presence is either really hot or really cold. That's what it's like to be in this gym. I'm either freezing or sweaty. That's kind of how it works. That's not, but it's not in this gym. It's not in some holy place. It's not in the place where you came to know Christ the first time as if that's a more spiritual place than this one. No, God is found, can be found anywhere. And he's primarily found through his word. His presence, you get to know him and be around him and aware of him as you read his word and figure out what the God who's in this room is up to. When you read his word and figure out what's most true about you, what's most real about this world, what's God up to, it's in his word. And in John 5, what we see, we see Jesus teaching us about the scriptures. In John 5, Jesus begins to teach us God in the flesh, he shows up, and what's fascinating is God in the flesh shows up. And so some of us would think that God in the flesh would go, okay, I'm here, God is here now, you don't need the Bible anymore because I'm here. And yet, what Jesus says is, I'm here, and the way you can get to know me even more so, especially when I'm gone, is by going to my word. That this word, this Bible, it testifies about me. Look at John 5, verse 37 through 40. 37 through 40, you can see Jesus say this himself. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, the written word of God. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In this context, Jesus is talking to some disgruntled Jewish people in that day and age who were mad at him because he had broken their laws of the Sabbath. And they're, they're angry. They want to actually kill him, it says in John five nineteen 19, because, because they can see what he's doing. They can see that he's making himself equal with God by saying the Sabbath should really be operated this way. And so Jesus begins to talk to them, and he says, listen, I'm not saying I'm divine, though I am, but I have plenty of witnesses telling you that I am divine. He tells him, so he's that term to bear witness. Because in, in this theme in John 5, he's saying there's a lot of witnesses telling you and testifying that I am the son of God. So he says, you had John the Baptist. John the Baptist testified to you that I was divine. He says, you have my miracles. I'm healing people to testify to you that I am divine. And then he says, the father, God the father himself is testifying to you and bearing witness that I am divine. And then he gets to the Bible. He tells these highly religious, highly devout Jews. He says, and this Bible you've read, guess who it points to? He says, it points to me. This book that you've been reading nonstop, it points to me. It actually can bring you to me so you can have life. And he drops this bomb on this group of people. This group of people confess they are highly devoted to God highly religious people who are attending services like us and reading their Bibles like most of us. And Jesus drops a bomb on them. He says that although they had searched the Bible, although they had read it diligently, they had never known God. It's crazy to think about that. They had read and read and read and read the Bible. And he says, you have never known, you have never heard, and you have never loved God. So he tells them, He tells them, you thought that life was in the book when the book was pointing to where life is and it's found in me. That's what Jesus told these people. He said, for all their Bible reading, they had missed out on God. He doesn't condemn Bible reading. He condemns reading for the sake of reading. Just reading the words on the pages, if that's all that it is. The goal of the Bible is to come to Christ. This is really applicable for us because in the church generally, but in our church especially... Here's what happens. We tend to make our Bible reading regimen, our Bible reading regimen, the bar for us. And if you've done it well, then you've succeeded. And if you've done it poorly, you've failed. Very easily in our church, what happens is we make Bible reading the standard by which you rise or fall on the Christian faith. And so and I can, I'm not exaggerating at all when I say this, I'll ask people in our church, in this room, say, hey, how are you and God doing? I ask the question because I want to know how you and God are doing. And what I find incredibly fascinating is that almost without fail, I can't think of a person who hasn't done this that I've asked. From, this is whether an elder or just a person who's here for the first time. Almost without fail, what happens is when I say, how are you and God doing, we immediately begin to describe how our Bible reading is going. Almost without fail. How are you doing with God? My time in the Word has been, it's normally how the conversation goes. It's interesting to me that as soon as we hear the question, what's the dynamic like between you and God right now? What's the nature of the relationship like between you and God right now? And our mind immediately runs to assessing how often have we been reading this, the words on the page. It's immediately what we go to. And so what happens if, you've, if you think about it and you've been reading the Bible, you, are, you feel comforted. You feel confident in your relationship with God. Why? Because I've been reading my Bible. I, we actually are doing pretty well. I've been reading my Bible every day. You don't think about the areas of your life where you're cold towards people. You don't think about generosity. You don't think about, have I even interacted with God? I just think, I've read the Bible, and I feel pretty good about it, so we're good. And on the flip side of that, if you haven't read your Bible, and you've been inconsistent, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I haven't read in a while. Make something up quick. Like, you get in that kind of situation. All of a sudden, you start feeling insecure, don't you? All of a sudden, you're like, well, I mean, I guess pretty bad. I haven't read my Bible consistently this week, and time of the Word's been pretty lacking. And, and all of a sudden, no matter what's going on the rest of your life, because you haven't read your Bible, you immediately feel insecure about your relationship with God. And what that shows us is we are a lot like these first century Jews And that we tend to measure our relationship with God simply based on the fact of have we read our Bibles. And we begin to talk as if it's a one-to-one correlation. We begin to talk as if if Bible reading is high, then the closeness to God is high. That's how we think. We think if someone's read their Bible a lot, surely they're close to God. But what did Jesus just say? Jesus just said in his word that you could have read the Bible every day of your life and never know God. It's a very intense claim by him. To tell them, you've searched the scriptures diligently, better than most, and yet you're spiritually dead. That's what he told them told them, just because you've read the Bible doesn't guarantee that you've met with God. I've heard people in my life proclaim to me how they've never missed a day reading the Bible, which could be a good thing, but by itself doesn't tell me anything about you. It tells me you're disciplined, but it doesn't tell me you've actually met with God reading the book because Jesus just told me it's possible to do it and not meet with him. Now, before you're thinking, yes, I'm through the Bible anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to be awesome 2016. That's not what I mean. Okay, Let me be really, really clear what I'm saying. I am not, and Jesus is not, disparaging reading the Bible every day. I am not disparaging going to your time in the Scriptures as a way to assess your relationship with God. I'm not saying that. I'm actually going to argue for both later in the sermon. But the point Jesus is making is that reading your Bible is not the goal of the Bible. Reading your Bible is not the goal of the Bible. Reading your Bible in order to meet with God and Christ is the goal. That's the goal. That's why we read it. You read this book not to worship the book, but so that you can know the person in this room with us, the Jesus who's risen in heaven over us, the spirit who's in us, so you can know this God, so you can interact with him. Because don't think, I know there's some of us in this room now, we think, yeah, that's what I've been saying. That's right, Tyler. Good point. It's not about reading your Bible every day, it's about loving Jesus. That is what we tend to kind of overcorrect and say, yeah, it's not about reading the Bible every day. It's about loving Jesus. That's also wrong. That's also wrong. Because Jesus doesn't throw the Bible out. He tells them, and He in the context, what you see is He's saying, You should be searching the scriptures, but they should be pointing you to me. They should be pointing you to me. Look at John 5 39. Look, look at the text again. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, you think that just by reading them, it's some sort of like magical incantation that if you just read, read the words, then you're saved. He says, you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And it is they, these scriptures that you're searching, they bear witness authoritatively about me. Look at it in verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying that if you want to get to know God, you have to read your Bible. That's what he's saying. Listen, reading the Bible doesn't guarantee that you've met with God. But if you want to meet with God, you need to read your Bible. You need to follow. That's really, really important. You understand the nuance of that statement. Reading your Bible, just reading the pages, does not guarantee you've met with God. But if you want to meet with God, you need to read the scriptures. Jesus says, they testify about me. What's, and what's sad about these, these people he's talking to, they were in the right place looking for the wrong thing. That's what's sad about this, this text for me is they're in the right place. He says, you should be in the Bible. You're just looking for the wrong thing. And that's what we're like a lot of the times. Like, don't look at these these people and go, man, they're so evil, and they're ogres, and they're terrible. I would never do that. No, you're just like them, because they're reading the Bibles, and they probably love parts of the Bible. Like, much like us, they went to the Bible to find morals. Or they went to the Bible to find wisdom. Or they went to the scriptures to figure out how to love people more effectively. They went to do all these different things. But Jesus says, if your reading of the Bible doesn't produce more affection, more allegiance, more devotion, more submission, more admiration for Christ himself, then you've missed the whole point of what you're reading. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you want life? Great. Read the scriptures and they'll take you to me. That's what he's saying. And for us to read them rightly... They'll change our posture and our attitude towards Christ. Now, if you're going to do that, like if, you, if we as a people, you as a Christian, if you're going to be able to read the Bible like that in a way that it points you to Jesus, that it terminates on him, not on you, you're going to need a lot of help to do that. Just so you know, like you're going to need some instruction. You're going to need some counsel on how to do that effectively. You're going to need some practical tools about, well, where do you start in the Bible? You're going to need some instruction on hermeneutics and how do you interpret certain texts in the Bible. You're going to need a method to help you know how to work through a text and apply it to your life. You're going to need some resources to do this well. And what's great about the stone is we have a plethora of resources to help you do this. We have so many different books and commentaries to help you understand what the text is saying. We have a method called REAP. Read, examine, apply, pray, it's a method that I use, the pastors use here, our staff uses here at the stone, our partners use at the stone. Because it's a fantastic way to journal through the scriptures and meet with God through your reading of the Bible. We have all these resources. And even more than those, those tangible things, those, these books, these uh, tools, we have people. We have people in this room who can teach you how to read the Bible. I don't think about the church as where I get goods and services from. think about the church as people I can depend on. So some of you in here are like are newer believers, you never even read the Bible before, and you're trying to figure out how to do it, and you're reading a book but you don't understand it. There are seasoned believers in this room who would love to help you know how to read the Bible. There are pastors here to help you do that. If you're a non-believer, you're like, how do I even read the Bible? I want to know more about this Jesus guy. People in this room can help you. We are a community that can rely on one another. So we have all these resources at our disposal to read the Bible, and they're so, 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 so important. And I don't want to talk about any of them the rest of our time together. Because we'll talk about it at the end of the service. We'll give you ways to get to these resources. But here's why. Here's the argument I want to finish the sermon with is this. For any of those books, for any of those tools to have any effect in your life, it's going to require time in the Bible. It's going to require actual time reading this book in order to meet with God. All the books and all the tools in the world will not help you if you don't spend significant, focused, undistracted, intentional time reading the Bible in order to meet with God. See, over and over again in the Bible, you will be hard-pressed to find, hard-pressed to find one verse where it says explicitly, plainly, read your Bible. You'll be hard-pressed to find it. But what you'll see is God uses much more intense imagery. He says, he never says just read the Bible. He says, consume it. He says, eat it. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He says, take this word and hide it in your heart. He says, meditate on it. When God talks about his word, he never talks about it. And just read the words on the page. He says, meditate on it, ...soak in it, marinate in what I've said. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to show you Psalm 1 where you can see what it looks like when you meditate in the Word. You're going to see in Psalm 1, God described this person and how they read the Bible and what it produces in them. Psalm 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Look at verse two and three again. I'm gonna read those again. Just hear what this person's like. Says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. It talks about this person, this man, and says he is this person who meditates on the Word of God, and that What's inferred in this is he's meeting with God. He's in the presence of God. And it says he becomes like this tree. I love this imagery. It's incredible to think about. He says it becomes like this tree. Imagine this tree planted by these streams of water. And it says that what's special about this tree is that this tree is, has these deep roots. These deep roots that are able to tap into the water source of the streams. And so that it says its leaf... Does not wither. What that means is that no matter the season, the tree never dies. So even in the most bitter of winters, the leaf does not die. Why? It has access to the stream. In the most dry summers, its leaf does not wither. Why? Because it has access to the stream. No one knows. You can't even see it. It's hidden down in the ground, but it, its leaf does not wither. And then when spring does come, it says it bears its fruit. That when blessing does come, it bears fruit and multiplies. Now, how does this happen? What is this describing? It's describing this person. When you meditate on the word of God, what begins to happen is it gives you a joy and an identity and a purpose that's rooted down deep that circumstances can't take away. That's what it's saying. When you meditate on the Bible and you meditate on the word of God, what happens is the word of God goes down deep into who you are. So that even when suffering comes or difficulty comes or Dry seasons spiritually come, your leaf does not wither because you have access to God's presence through his word. And what's so important to see is that the strength of this man in Psalm 1 is not rooted in himself. The imagery clearly indicates that the strength is not the tree. The strength is that it has access to the streams. That's what the strength is. It's not that this man is so great. It's that he has this word he's going to, and it says he read the word. He skimmed the word? No, he meditated on it. When we we hear the word meditate, we think Eastern religion, we think meditation means empty your mind and find serenity. That's how we talk about meditation. Typically, that's how we think about it. When God uses the term meditation, he means fill your mind with his word. He means contemplate his word. He means marinate in his word. That's what he means. He does not mean empty your mind and just find peace. He means, no, fill your mind with my word and contemplate what I have said and am saying to you. It takes time. To meditate on the word of God takes time. You can't microwave it. You can't fast track it. You can't do it while you do other things. You have to spend significant, focused, undistracted, intentional time doing it. You need time to pray over the things that you're reading and praying to believe God's testimony about life more than your own. That's why you and I, when we read the scriptures, we often fail to meet God because we rush through it. We rush through it. We want to be able to have nothing in our life change and find a way to squeeze a little bit of time in the Bible every now and then and think that's what I need. But you don't understand it takes time for the truth that you've read, that you understand in your mind to drip down into the core of who you are. Like Think about it that way. That when you read the scriptures and you're meditating on the word of God and you're trying to meet with God, it's like the knowledge that you're reading is dripping slowly like a faucet. Dripping slowly like a faucet down into the core of who you are. So in, in an instant, in a couple of minutes, it looks pretty empty. But over time, all of a sudden, you've been filled up all of a sudden you've been in God's presence and your joy is full. But that takes time. And hear me really clearly. I'm not saying that just five minutes in the Bible is a bad thing. I'm not saying that if your day is slammed and all you can seriously get in is five minutes before you go to work or five minutes before you go to bed. That's fine. That's great. If you're a new believer and you've never read the Bible before, it's probably a good place to start. But if that's all it ever is, if that's all it ever is, it's just five minutes here and there, maybe 10 minutes here and there, you're going to miss out on God. I'm not saying you won't be saved. I'm just saying you'll miss out on what it's like to be in his presence and have that fullness of joy. It'll be a lot of past tense stories that get further and further away when you talk about the fullness of joy in his presence. It takes time. And you can see in your own lives, you can see the power of what happens to a human being when they give anything focused, intentional, undistracted time. Because we are a very distracted people. Right? I mean, there are study after study about how we are always multitasking, thinking we're being more productive when every study says we're not. We are very distracted people, but when we will finally just give something intentional, focused, undistracted time... It's, in, it's incredible to me the power it produces in a human being. You can see this in TV and in movies, in TV and in movies. All of us, I would assume most of us in this room right now have a favorite TV show. Like, and I don't just mean a show that you'll watch casually. I mean a show that you're like, okay, I'm going to get home. I'm going to get everything good to go so I can watch my show. Maybe you don't have one right now. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it, you used to have a show. You like used to love Lost and you would make it a point to watch Lost or... That wasn't you, maybe you love Dallas, I don't know, um, 90210, what else can I hit? Like, but you've had a favorite show before, you don't need to tell everybody what it is. But you've had that show that you just looked forward to and you made time for. I mean, I, I have a show like that. I have a show like that. And what's incredible about the power of these narratives, both in TV and in movies, the power of narrative is that it can draw you in to where you experience that fictional world as if it's real. That's what's incredible about stories. It's able, and TV and movies are able to bring you into that world, to that reality, and you experience it as if it's real. You feel the letdown and the emotions as if they're not actors, as if it's real. I know for me, there, there are, my favorite TV show, there's times when I've watched it and I've tried to go to sleep afterwards and I have a hard time going to sleep because I'm like amped up. I'm ready to fight somebody. I'm thinking about how I would have done what they did and I'm just amped up, I can't go to sleep. Now let me tell you, why do I feel that way? Because I'm not watching the show anymore. I'm just laying in bed thinking about how I would do X, Y, Z thing or what's gonna happen next in the show. Why is it still affecting me even after I've watched it? I can tell you, it's not because I think there are zombies in Georgia out to get me. That's not why. I'm not telling Lauren, getting Pitchfork ready, hey, it's time to go, they're coming, I'm ready. Like that's not what's, that's not, that's not why I know they're actors. I know it's makeup. I know it's CGI. I know it's not real. And yet, even after I'm done watching the show, it's still affecting my emotional state. It's the power of narrative, the power of story. But, what's, but why is it able to be that effective? You ever thought about that? Like, why is it able to be that effective to where a fictional world can still affect me? It's because I spent 48 minutes and 25 seconds devoted to that world. I gave 48 minutes of my life of intentional, focused, undistracted time to wade into that reality and experience it as if it were true. I gave it that. I waded into that world and I experienced it as if it were real. And it required a lot of time to get to that place. Because I don't know about you, but I know that I don't watch my favorite TV show 10 minutes before I go to work when I'm brushing my teeth. That's not when I turn it on. I don't turn it on when I'm eating dinner. I don't turn it on when I'm giving the kids a bath. That's not when I do it. When do I do it? I do it after dinner, after the dishes are either put away or I've promised to put them away, which means I'll put them away tomorrow probably. Um, kids are asleep and it's quiet. It's about, probably my life about nine o'clock and that's when I watch the show. That's when I do it. Why? I want undistracted time to focus on the show. Like that, that's why we have movie theaters. That's why movie theaters, what do they do? The, the lights go down low, and you focus on... This is why the draft house threatens to destroy you if you talk, right? <laughs> They're the best. I love them for it. Because I'm like, yeah, y'all be quiet. I'm trying to watch the show here. i do not come talk to you. I want to listen to watch the movie. That's why they do it. They show it. Why? To say, eliminate distractions... Focus on this world as if it were real so you can get the most out of it. It's the power of giving a narrative, a testimony of reality, focused, intentional, undistracted time. And those movies that are fake, you find them affecting you even after you're done watching it. You find them affecting you maybe even years later. You find them affecting you. Now, if that can happen with a fake world, with fake stories and false promises, how much more so could that happen with God's narrative of what the world's really like? How much more could that happen if we gave intentional, focused, undistracted time to wade into God's testimony of what the world is really like, what you are really like, what he is really like and what he is gonna do? What if we did the same for our time in the scriptures, because you have to understand, you don't be deceived into thinking that just because you believe the Bible to be the word of God, and many of you do, just because you believe the Bible to be the word of God does not mean you can just enter into its reality, enter into its claims in a cavalier way. You, 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 it's saying things that are staggering. And you can't just all the time quickly and easily enter into the Bible and just have it affect you like that. Because the Bible is a staggering book. A lot of us have read it a lot, so we forget how staggering it is. But think about the grandiose things it's talking about. Think about the grandiose cosmic realities God is speaking to us about ourselves, about the world, about humanity, about what he's going to do in the scriptures. It's staggering to think about. God talks about things like heaven and hell and you read it, and you read things like about angels and demons, you read things like, okay, resurrection, and I'm going to get up from the ground one day and dust the dirt off of my arms in my new body in a new heavens and a new earth. When you read that and you haven't had time to soak in it, it can feel like a fictional movie, can it not? It can seem like another testimony, another reality that I'm kind of casually entering into. But the truth is, this word is true, right, and perfect, and it's telling you what's most real. And so for you to enter into such staggering, seismic claims like the Bible says, you're going to need time to soak in them. Uh, There's going to be things you read in the Bible that confirm everything you've ever thought about life. There's going to be things in the Bible you read and say, that's what I've always felt, and the Bible put words to it. You're going to read things in the Bible, and you're going to learn about God, and you're going to think, that's what I always thought God was like, and the Bible articulated it for me. And there's things in the Bible you're going to read, and you're going to think, that contradicts every experience I've ever had. You're going to read that. You're going to read things in the Bible that, whatever, it varies for all of us, where you read it and you go, there's no way that's reality. That's more a mythical, fictional kind of thing. That's what's going to happen. And so for you to have those realities, once again, drip from your mind down into your heart, you're going to need time to soak in them. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch TV shows, okay? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is if the way we treat entertainment can be so powerful in our lives, what if we treated God's word that way? What if we took the same planning that we do to make sure we can watch our show? What if we treated the Word of God like that? I think it would change the way we interact with God. I think it would change our lives. And so here's what I want to end on I want to end with a really practical encouragement to you, really a practical instruction for you. Because I, want, I don't want us to get lost in the haze of how do I do this? What does this mean? I want to give you a really practical challenge. I'm, I'm, when you're pastors, I care about your relationship with Jesus. I think about it more than you realize. I want this for you so badly. And here's what I would love for us to strive for in 2016, that you would strive to spend 30 minutes to an hour a day in intentional, focused, undistracted time reading the Bible in order to meet with God. 30 minutes to an hour of focused, undistracted time in the Bible. Now, let me clarify why I picked all those pieces of this challenge. Why 30 minutes to an hour? I can tell you really transparently, it's a totally arbitrary number, just so you know. 30 minutes to an hour is an arbitrary number. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says, hey, read your Bible for 15 minutes because God's normally late about 15 minutes, and then he shows up. It's not how it works. You can read the Bible, and in 10 seconds, you read a verse, and you are aware of God's presence, and it is amazing, and you're challenged, you're instructed, you're rebuked, you're comforted, all the things God does through his word. That can happen in 10 seconds, or you can read it for two hours and feel like you're still waiting on God. But here's why I chose 30 minutes to an hour. Because that's how long, typically, most of the shows are that you watch. That's why I chose it. Okay, we'll be really technical. 22 minutes to an hour. How about that, okay? I know 22 minutes. If you're being really technical, 22 minutes to like 49 minutes. Okay, that's what I'm looking for. Here's why. Because it takes that long for you to enter into a world that's fake. Let's take that same formula and apply it to the Bible. And say, I'm going to give that long to enter into God's testimony as to what's true. 30 minutes to an hour. And the reason I said every day, every day. Well, one, because in Psalm 1, the blessed man, the happy man is what blessed means. The joyful man, he says he meditated on the law of God day and night. It wasn't just a casual thing for him. It wasn't like, I'll get around to it sometime this week for him. It was day and night. So at least every day... But here's also why you need the Bible every day. Because every day, listen, every day you are hearing or sensing, both from in the world and in your own heart, because you still have sin, you are hearing a different testimony about where life is. Every day. Every single day there's a different testimony in your life telling you, no, 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 life is not found in Jesus, it's found in this thing. Like every day when you're at work, You're hearing a testimony from a witness that's saying, no, I didn't see life over there in Jesus. I saw life over here in performance. I saw life over here in achievement. I saw life over here in perception and status. That's where I saw life. It's over there, I'm telling you. Every day a different witness is telling you where life is. Every day your lust is telling you, no, no, no. Life's not over there in Jesus. I know you've heard that, but I've seen with my own two eyes that life is found in your sexual desires being expressed however you want with whoever you want. Every day you're hearing that. Every day greed is coming to you both inside and from outside saying, no, I know you've heard life's found in Jesus. That's nice. That's cute. But really it's found in larger savings account. Really it's found in a new pair of shoes. Really it's found in a 401k. Every day you're hearing testimony saying you have got it wrong. And you have to know even within you, you have sin that wants to believe that. Even if you're a believer, you still have sin in you that wants to believe, you know what, you're right. This witness is more authoritative than this witness. That witness says that they saw life here. This witness says it's found in Jesus. I'm inclined to believe them. That's still in every single one of us. So every day, I I need the Bible to tell me, Tyler, this is where life is. Life's not down that path, it's down this one. Life's not found in you practicing vengeance. It's found in forgiveness. Life's not found there. Trust me, I'm your God. That's what God speaks to us in his word. We need it every single day. Now, really, really honestly, will you be able to do this every day? Like I know some of you are thinking, I mean, that sounds great, but every day, I don't think it's possible. And honestly, it's probably not this year. It's probably not going to happen where every single day you spend 30 minutes to an hour of intentional focus, undistracted time in the Bible. It's probably not going to happen. Why? Because things come up. Emergencies will happen. You're going to make bad decisions and you're going to sin and you're not going to want to do it. Your kids are going to stay up all night. My kids have already accomplished that in 2016. They already did that this year. Good for them. Okay? Check off their list. Things are going to happen. They're going to happen. Okay? So you may not do it every single day, but hear me really clearly just because you can't have the ideal every day doesn't mean you shouldn't strive for it just because you can't have the ideal every day doesn't mean you shouldn't strive for it. when we, when we have that attitude when I have that attitude of like well I can't do it so why even try that's called spiritual pouting that's what that is that's what my five-year-old da- my four-year-old daughter does she's like I can't have that then I want to die you're like how are those the only two options here Either I give you cookies or you should just die. Like, I, I don't understand how those are the only two. But that's what we do. Well, I couldn't do it. I tried. Why even do it? Tyler's a liar. Like, what, like, why do we go there? Because we don't want to have to think creatively about how to solve a problem. Like, the only difference between my children and me is that we can both recognize problems since I know how to solve them. And the more immature you are, you can, all of us, my, my son's 18 months old. He can cry And recognize a problem, but he can't solve it. And for us to grow into Christ means recognize a problem, but work to a solution. That's what it means to grow in maturity in Christ. And so it's gonna take planning, but don't let the messiness of life keep you from God. So it's gonna take planning for you. So for for me, I'll give a real practical way to think about your life. For me, I have two young children. We're about to, I don't know if I've told you guys this, we're having number three in March, okay, a little girl. And I'm going to have, in March, three kids under five. I'm tired just saying it, okay? Three kids under five. Do you think my home is described as intentional, focused, quiet, undistracted time? No. Now, that's how it is most of the time, but there are times when I can find that. But do you know when I have to do this? The only time that this really works for me is waking up earlier than normal. That's the only time for me and my wife, Lauren, if we're going to spend time, this kind of time in the Bible to meet with God, it has to be early. Because my son, Henry, is going to be up by 630, bare minimum, bare minimum. He's going to be up. So I have to think ahead. Now, here's where it gets, you have to be thoughtful. All of us, we tend to do this thing. We, we make a plan, a resolution. I want to do this thing. I want to add this new thing to my life. I want to do 30 minutes to an hour in the Bible every day. But we don't think, well, something's going to have to give. So for me, I'm a morning person. Like, I love the mornings. Like You would probably hate me. Lauren does most of the time in the morning. Like I'm chipper. I like you. How are you doing? Shut up. We don't want to talk to you. Okay, like, that's the interaction. I like the morning. So waking up early is not a big deal for me. But you know what's harder for me? Going to bed earlier. Like, that's where the rub is, right? Think about your life as an integrated whole. As an integrated whole. So if I want to do this, i got to go to bed earlier. So in your life, when you think about this, what's going to have to change in order to make this a priority? You may have to sacrifice something. You probably will. But notice how I did the 30 minutes to an hour thing. You have to sacrifice a whole TV series, just one episode. Just one episode. And you can do this in your life. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if I do everything and it still doesn't work? That's going to happen. You're going to plan out everything perfectly and something's still going to come up. You're going to plan out everything perfectly, and my son Henry is going to decide I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to be godly and say no to another episode of The Office that night. I'm going to go to bed early, and I'm going to wake up. And guess who wanted to wake up at 5 a.m.? My son. And guess who wants to wake up and play trains nonstop? My son. And so, in my mind, this is really important. In my mind, what is easy to happen is like, well, I don't want, now I can't read the Bible anymore. That's not true. That's not true. No, now my Bible reading time is going to look different. I wanted it to be a cup of coffee, quiet, and the scriptures. Instead, it's going to be coffee, not quiet, and an 18-month-old yelling choo-choo at me nonstop. Like, that's what it's going to be. But that's okay. You, Christian, you have to be okay with God throwing you a curveball. God runs my day. And so he wanted this morning to be different than what I planned. I can adapt to that. I can create a different solution to that. And I can still have time in the scriptures that morning. And there's going to be times when you read the scriptures and you get nothing out of it. Please, please, please don't let reading the Bible and going, I just got nothing, make you go, then it's worthless. That's not true. I was telling Lauren this like six days ago. I read the Bible that morning. And I spent time just trying to meet with God. And I didn't get, I was like, I don't. I didn't really get anything. I know what the text means, but nothing really impacted me. That doesn't mean it's never going to impact me. It just means that morning was different than I thought. So when you think about 2016, remember, you you are not loved because you read the Bible. This is why we feel so much pressure about this. We really think, I'm loved if I read the Bible, and if I don't read the Bible, then God's frustrated. It's not true. You're loved because Jesus already worked for you. That's the gospel, right? But here's what Bible reading does. Bible reading doesn't save you, it doesn't make God love you, but it reminds you how refreshing it is to be loved by God. That's what it means, that's what it does. It's, it's, it doesn't, the way I always think about reading my Bible, it doesn't put money in the bank account for me with God. It's just me swiping my debit card and experiencing it. If I don't read my Bible this morning, God's still going to love you, he's still going to love me. Jesus did all the work for you, but you won't experience in the way you'd want to. Your bank account stays the same, but you didn't spend any of the capital. But if you read the scriptures, you're not, you're not making God love you more. You're just accessing what he's already given to you. And that's where the Bible should be for us. And I hope 2016 is we look more like that tree. I hope your life, because 2016 is gonna bring all sorts of things, some blessing, some difficulty, some joys and some sorrows. And I hope that as we meditate in the word of God, we have access to his presence by Jesus Christ and his word that we become more like that tree. That as you meditate in the word, you would be in his presence and your joy and your identity and your purpose and the love that you depend on would go down deep. And that no matter the circumstance, you would, your leaf would not wither. And that when blessing comes, you would bear fruit for the joy of his name. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, without it, we would know nothing of you. Without it, we would have no clarity as to what you're doing and what you're up to. We would be like blind men in a dark room, not knowing what we're touching, not knowing where we're going, not knowing what's happening. But God, you have spoken to us. And God, you want to meet with us. You haven't just spoken once, but you want to keep speaking to us through your word. And so God, make us a people who Want your presence, who want your joy, who want your life. God, guard us from the lies of the enemy that try to deceive us and the lies that we're so prone to believe that tell us that if we haven't read our Bible in a while, why start now? If we haven't met with God in a while, why start now? Because, God, you want to meet with us. Because, God, It was never about us being lovely. It was about you being loving. It was never about us being worthy. It was about you being kind. It was never about us working to make you love us. It was about you working to us to show us how great your love is. So God, make us a people who are rooted in this word. So that this city has a church and has a people that they can look to and say, they have access to strength and access to joy that I don't have access to. But God, it comes as we meditate and delight in what you've said. So God, for those of us who have little desire, God, would you fan it into flame? For those of us who are worried about losing something, would you remind us that fullness of joy is worth whatever it costs? God, I love your word. It's a lamp unto our feet. God, give us hunger for it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church, let's stand, let's sing together.